0: Since 2012, again, I'm maybe conservatively eight or 10,000 off road miles on my old Land Cruiser. Still driving around on the same tires. It's never broken down. It's never left me stranded. A guy blew by me in a 50 Studebaker at like 130. Whoa, bah, man, this place is crazy.
1: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening from places like East Wareham, Massachusetts, Laramie, Wyoming, Hammond, Louisiana, Lima, Peru, Goiânia, Brazil, Lilienthal, Germany, and Doncaster, England. Thanks for making this humble podcast a part of your day. Okay, so I have to do a little self-promotion here. And I know you guys get this. If I want new listeners, I could spend huge wads of cash on some marketing campaign, or I could just ask you to help me out. So here it goes. If you enjoy what I'm doing here, seriously, tell your friends that this is a different kind of automotive podcast. Help spread the word about the show. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, tap those three little dots that you see on your screen, and then tap share and send the show to a friend. If you've heard more than one or two episodes, then you know how focused I am and how tight I like to keep it. And that's because I respect the value of your time. We're all busy, right? And you give me a small portion of your day and hopefully I entertain you. So get the word out. Tell your friends about Horsepower Heritage and let's grow the audience together. And by the way, we're doing really well. Um, I can't thank you enough for all the support so far. I'm going to keep this thing going, and I just need you to help me out. And, and that's my pitch, all right? So one more thing before we get started here. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, do that now, and just send me a direct message to say hi, and I'll send you a Horsepower Heritage decal if you want one. You guys are awesome, and I'm happy to send you a little something, so thank you very much. All right. Well, today my guest is Michael Emery. Michael is, I guess what I'd call, a serial adventurer. So whether it's professional or otherwise, he kind of just goes out and discovers things he's passionate about, and he commits himself to that pursuit. Michael hosts his own podcast called Slow Baja, which is part travelogue, part slice of life, part off-road odyssey, and I've got to say, it's a haven from the onslaught of social media and crisis headlines and all the frantic chatter in our world every day. Now, when you think about Baja California, you probably think about the desert and surfing and off road racing and tacos and beer and maybe getting into some trouble. And Michael's done all of that, but he also knows there's something deeper about the place. So if you want to relax and just enjoy good vibes, I recommend you follow Slow Baja on whatever podcast app you use and pour yourself a frosty beer and tap on an episode and listen in. And I promise, you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, I give you Michael Emery, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Let's hit it. Well, Michael, thanks for being with me today. I'm really excited about this. Um, Oh, good. And I I have to say, first of all, how much I really enjoy your podcast. Hey, and by the way, um, you're working your ass off on this thing.
0: You know, it's a lot easier to just Zoom somebody and ask a bunch of questions and let them talk, but like you're writing stories doing research bringing stuff up
1: thank you by the way there's a reflection on one of the photographs behind you so i can't quite make it out but that's either jim clark or briggs cunningham
0: oh you are a pretty smart boy we're going to get over here to the jesse alexander collection all right it
1: is jim clark i don't know if we can get
0: to that three example jesse alexander so jim clark angio sterling moss yep helped Jesse Alexander get his last book funded with a brilliant idea, and he sent me this as a thank you. The start of the '67 um, Monaco Grand Prix.
1: Fantastic! I love it. You know, I don't know if you heard my my Jackie Stewart episode a few weeks. I did. Ago. I did, and I enjoyed it immensely. Good. I'm glad. I'm always nervous because, you know, there are a lot of guys out there who are older and much wiser and know far more. They've forgotten more than I'll know about this stuff. So, to do this subject matter justice, you know, it's a little intimidating. You know, I want to do it justice and give the story depth, but you can't take three hours to tell the story. You've got to boil it down. So, it's tough. No, well, you're quite good at it. And I'm not saying that to unnecessarily
0: uh, fluff your ego here, but you. you're you're taking a challenging course to this. But to put yourself out there and come up with these stories where you also have to be an authority and get the freaking facts right, that's no easy task. So I admire you for that. The Jackie Stewart one I enjoyed immensely. I've re- read his uh, his biography. Uh, I think it's so interesting that he was a skeet shooter. Um, skeet shooting changed my younger son's life and then led him to rowing because there was a rowing club across the lake. And, you know, he told me, you know, dad, Graham Hill is a, rower that's why he's got those stripes on his uh his helmet and it's just interesting stuff like like that so kudos to you for taking on these challenging subjects and carving a a different niche
1: thank you yeah and uh i I really meant what i said i can't i love your show can't wait to hear what's coming what spurred you into podcasting how did that all start uh
0: you know i got into podcasts listening to podcasts because um I was making these drives down to LA to see my wife. Uh, She's flying down there for work. We've got two kids going, our twins. We have uh, twins. They're both in school in Southern California. Um, They don't need to see their parents, but they do need to see their dogs. And so, you know, probably once a month I was, jumping in the forerunner and blazing a trail to LA with a couple of uh, elderly dachshunds with me. And, you know, just needed something to pass those miles. And I started researching podcasts and started researching Baja specifically. And there was very, very little on Baja. And so pretty quickly I found the, you know, the one show on it and I was listening to it. And I sent the host a message and said, you know, I just want to tell you about the show that you produced on uh, Bruce Myers, the creator of the myers Manx. I knew the myers Manx vehicle. Certainly, you know, you see people with dune buggies and, you know, they're kind of cool. You know, it's not my thing, but people are into them. Yeah, I get it. But I just didn't know the story behind the creator it was just, I thought it was very powerful. You know, Bruce is tearing up and talking about his struggles as a as a car builder and he didn't you know, retain the copyright of his or the trademark of his vehicle. And it was being knocked off all over the world. And he was super bitter about that. And that story really moved me. So I sent a note to the, the show host, like immediately, you know, sent a note back, you know, hey, what's Slow Baja about? And a couple of days later, I'm sitting in his home studio in LA recording a podcast with him. And I thought, oh, I've, I've seen behind the curtain of podcasting. <laughs> I could do this. And I've been thinking about it. I was actually going to, to meet with my Mexico adventure buddy who had been in the, um, the internet space very early. He had a, a website on Mexico called MexOnline, and he got in early enough in the 90s that he could have owned mexico.com and felt that it was, you needed to explain that it was Mexico and online. So he launched a site called MexOnline instead of Mexico.com. Never really cashed in on it. But, you know, we were going, I was going to San Diego to talk to him about launching a podcast. And then all of a sudden I'm recording one on the way, which was just amazing. Like, wow, this is like the planets are aligning. And so then I just started guest hosting for um, Jim Riley on his Baja show, but I've always kind of done my own thing. And, you know, as photography has gone away as a career, you have to kind of look at how do you still tell stories that are relevant and meaningful. A couple of my passions are Mexico for sure and storytelling. And so launched Slow Baja, started talking to people and then figured out how to get the podcast onto a platform that people could actually find it, figure out how to get people to listen to it. And, you know, I'm glad we're about a year, year apart from when I first got onto Apple and Spotify and all that. And Slow Baja Baja is going along, you know, swimmingly. And, you know, I'm, I'm very excited. It's, it's really been rewarding to have birthed this thing and, and, you know, figured out week after week after week, who to talk to and what to do and where to go. And, you know, can't wait to get to Baja and record that next show.
1: You know, the, the name of the show, Slow Baja kind of captures it all, but also your tagline, what is it? uh, Tequila, tacos and tranquilo. Like I told you before, it, Just puts me in a good place mentally and uh, sort of metaphysically.
0: Well, you know, it's a
1: couple of tequilas
0: that usually put me in that place. So, uh, right, I'm happy. I'm I'm not enjoying that. I'm on straight water right now, but
1: as am I. But let's back up. Prior to the podcasting, you're a creative guy, right? You uh, you have a journalism degree, and I, I think you were a professional photographer for some time. And being a Bay Area guy, that's a very the Bay Area is a very hectic, ever-changing place, and I can't think of many places that are as much of a contrast.
0: Yeah, I live right in the heart of San Francisco, right where they filmed Bullet, where Steve McQueen comes sailing over the hill, those big, tall hills. That's four houses from where I live. I used to live, my first apartment was where he lands you know, on that first jump. So I'm in a very congested, very busy part of San Francisco. And one of the things I love is just you know, get across the border and within, you know, 20 minutes, a half hour, you know, you can be on dirt roads and it's desolation on your doorstep. And that for me is, it's just a life changing. It's an Instagram filter for my soul without being too um, flippant about it, but it's, it's at, you know, middle age, it's a great, it's a great release and a great reset um, for my soul. What was your
1: introduction to Baja, California?
0: Yeah. You know, I ended up in college in San Diego, didn't put a whole lot of thought into where I was going to go to school. My, I had an older cousin at San Diego state and I went and visited him and he took me to a party and, you know, had a great time. And I went, yep. Okay. They got a good newspaper. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to go to school here. And, uh, so that same cousin, you know, maybe a week or two before school started said, dude, let's go down to Puerto Nuevo and get us some lobster. I'm like, "Uh, whatever. Yeah, let's go and had a great lobster dinner, a little fishing village there that now has blown up into a place of probably 30 lobster restaurants. But back in the early 80s, you know, there's probably a dozen lobster restaurants or so. We, we had a lobster dinner and a bit to drink. He brought his girlfriend with him to drive us back because she didn't drink and um, managed to get pulled over on the way home, had to bribe a police officer. Uh, I was riding in the back of the pickup truck, looking at the stars, thinking what a gorgeous, beautiful night. And then it was like needle scratching the record. We're getting pulled over. And, you know, five minutes later, my cousin's bribing this cop and we're on our way. And I'm like, whoa, Baja, man, this place is crazy. So for then, you know, following that for years, it was just beach trips, camping, drinking because it was next door. It was less expensive. And that's where kids before you were 21, that's an easy place for kids in San Diego to go drink. And that's what it was for me for years. And it took a very long time before I actually scratched the surface and got past that. But when I did, man alive, what a place, what an amazing place.
1: That was such a gringo story of Baja. (laughs) You asked. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I know a guy who had a similar uh, drunken adventure in Baja in college and fell out of the back of a pickup truck in the dark of night. They had no idea he would rolled out of there and he woke up in a chicken coop on the side of the road and somehow managed to find his way back to his crew. But, but yeah, that's uh that's sort of a quintessential college Baja story, but you're right. There's so much more to it than that. That's what I like about your show you really are exploring so many different facets of the place. Americans' impression of Baja, or maybe the world's impression of Baja, is very much media-driven. You know, we get little, little snippets of Baja, whether it's the Mexican road racing or the fishing villages or the desert itself, you know, that desolate landscape. But what is it about, say, the people and the culture of Baja that, that hit you?
0: Well, I think that's once you do slow down enough to start really enjoying the place at a different pace, it's inevitable that you'll have an experience where you just come away and say, wow, that was amazing. That person was amazing. Years ago, I was traveling with my wife and three young kids and we had quit our jobs and were moving down to to Baja to um, spend some time just sort of unwinding. And on the first morning, we were driving on a little stretch of dirt road and got a a flat tire in our honda odyssey minivan and so you know we've got a a flat it's two twins and a four-year-old two-year-old twins and a four-year-old my wife's kind of freaking out it's miles from anything and you know so i get out and i change the tire and i said don't worry you know as soon as we get onto the main road there'll be a tire shop somebody will fix this tire we'll be right back you know we'll be fine and there was within a mile of getting the, hitting the main road. Somebody had the tire fixed and all was well. But there's a, there's a culture of kindness and a culture of giving. And I think that's what is mainly missed in the United States when people say, when you say Mexico or you say Baja, people immediately launch to, oh, isn't the crime so bad there? And maybe they saw a, a news clip of something horrific that happened that maybe was drug cartel crime or something. But, you know, again, I've been going there 37 years and outside of that first trip where my, where my cousin gave a police officer a $10 Mordita, the bite, um, because we were in the, I was illegally in the back of the truck. We haven't had another problem and, until this last trip in January. Maybe we'll talk about that later, but um you know, I find it very safe. I find the people wonderful. I love the culture. I love the food. I love the weather. So for me, it's uh, it's a crime not to go there.
1: One of the themes I've noticed in your podcast is, you know, there's an edge to Baja because it is an unforgiving landscape. By necessity in Baja, people are very interdependent. You know, you really have to take care of one another down there. And I, I think that, you know, locals don't discriminate. That That's the theme I get from many of your episodes.
0: Yeah, well I'm I'm delighted that there may be an uh, underlying theme in my show that I'm not consciously aware of, but it does come through. And it comes through in in many many ways and you're absolutely you hit the nail on the head. That is a commonality of Baja for sure, but you know possibly life in Mexico as well. I mean, we lived in the mainland of Mexico for kind of an extended vacation 6-7 months and you know, fell into needing our neighbors for a lot of things. And, you know, the street that I live on in San Francisco that I've lived on for 25 years, there's only one neighbor on my street that I could call on. But uh, as, as you've heard, if you've listened to the shows, many times, Sarah Beck talked about rolling her, her truck, you know, with her two little kids in the car. Um, and who's going to stop for them? Uh, a local Mexican stops. And really looked after them. And the the sadness of that was, you know, how many Americans drove by in their RVs or their pickup trucks and went, oh, wow, that's that looks like a gnarly accident. But who stopped? The local, you know, right. and, that, and that's saying something. And maybe it is living a little bit closer to the bone or maybe it's just a cultural touchstone that they, that, you know, they have less and they need the help of their neighbors and and they offer that help freely.
1: Yeah, I think um The more affluent we've become in the United States, the more isolated we've become. And I know that's a huge generality, but it's almost weird to say hello to a stranger um, in many parts of the United States. You don't get that in the rural areas as much. People are friendlier, but certainly like in Southern California, I mean, it's weird to say hi to a stranger. And that's not so in Baja.
0: No, I, I remember a, a my first sort of adventurous trip, one of the spring break trips that I took, I think it was back in 87, as the kids were started, starting to head north again, the migration north back to comfort and fast food, three or four days of drinking was enough. My buddy and my college roommate and I piled into my Toyota Corona with nothing more than a piece of foam that we were sleeping on and three sleeping bags. And Just drove for Point South. We didn't know where we were going, didn't know what we were gonna do, but we were gonna drive as far as our gas money could carry us in those days. And and literally the last day we were picking up bottles and returning beer bottles for the deposit to get, you know, the couple of bucks of gas to get back. But when we got to San Ignacio and there's that beautiful mission in the downtown, it's just a tiny little downtown square, but it's a beautiful oasis after all this desert. And we just needed to get out and stretch our legs. So we took a little lap of the The town and everyone said hello to us. And we said hello to everyone. And it really, again, it's 1987. It's a long time ago, but that is so clear in my mind. We made eye contact. We said hello. You know, it's just, it's a different pace of life. And I think that's what Slow Baja is, is about to some degree as well, is just finding that. You know, it's not everywhere. People are looking at their phones there like they're looking at their phones here. So it's not everywhere, but it is not nearly as prevalent uh, there as it is here where people do make the time there for conversation to, you know, change their plans, whatever plans they might have had to change their plans and have a beer with you. If you pull out that fine bottle of Fortaleza tequila, they're smart enough to say, you know, whatever I was doing, I'll join you for that shot. And that one might lead to another one, which might lead to a conversation, which might lead to who you never know what. And that's also something that there's more spontaneity and there's more openness to, to that, that interaction, that humanity, there's more openness to humanity, I
1: think. So Michael, you're a car guy. Let's talk about the Datsun. Is that the car that you campaigned under the Lucha Libre racing banner? Yeah. So, um, uh,
0: years ago in in San Felipe, uh, as a college kid on spring break, I heard the sound of V12 Ferrari. And I'd grown up pretty close to Sears Point and had spent a lot of time at Sears Point. And as a young budding photographer, had worked for the PR director at Sears Point when I was 16, photographing auto racing for the local weekly newspaper in my little town. And I really loved the vintage stuff. I'd grown up reading my dad's road and track magazines. I knew all about the racing of the 60s and 70s, and as, as as an eighties kid, you know, I loved going to Sears Point or Laguna Seca and seeing 25 year old Ferraris and Mercedes Benzes, you know, fifties and sixties, Mercedes Benzes are just being flogged like a 300 SL. that's just being flogged out there on the track. Cobras that were just being driven hard, um, you know, short wheelbase Ferraris that were just, again, guys just could drive them. They, they weren't that expensive and they had their foots and in, foot into them. So, being a spring break kid and half with half a heat on and hearing of V twelve Ferrari, pretty unmistakable sound coming into this little beach town. I just followed the the sound and and happened into the very end of a vintage car race that was the first rerunnings of the La Carrera Panamericana. And so in those days they ran it across the Baja Peninsula from Ensenada to, to San Felipe. And they did that in like eighty seven and 88 or 86 and 87. So that's the first place I saw it. And then fast forward to 2001, um, we're actually living in mainland Mexico, just checked out of our lives. My wife had quit her job. I was the governor of California's photographer and he was, um, I'm not going to say anything about him. He wasn't the most lively guy. We'll put it that way. Great Avis. So it was fun. I was a great job. The economy was booming. But when my wife quit her job, it forced my hand and I left the governor's employee and we rented our place out and ended up in Mexico. And my dad was flying down for day of the dead and I was driving out to the airport to pick him up early in the morning. And a guy blew by me in a 50 Studebaker at like 130. And I, I, I'm just like, what the heck? I mean, first of all, it's a, f- a 1950 Studebaker with that bullet nose. And then it had a number plate on the side and it went by me so fast and so loud. And I'm in my little Honda minivan. So I, you know, floored it and I'm doing about 105 or 108 or something. He's just a speck on the distance. So I got my dad from the airport. I said, "Dad, you would never believe this. Fifty student went by me at 130 today. Anyways, when we got back to town, the La Carrera was in our town. And in those days, the La Carrera uh, came through for two nights into Zacatecas and spent two fun, crazy nights. Happened to be um, World Series was on TV, so I had to walk down to the local bar where all the racers were hanging out, and I just. I just got hooked. I was talking to Doug Mockett and he's driving a 53 Oldsmobile and he's got white hair and spectacles. And I just said, you know, you see any speed on this race? So oh, I was doing 165 today. And I'm looking at the guy and I'm like, is he pulling my chain? And I said, you're doing 165 in that? And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, yeah. Coming in from August Calientes." I'm like, oh, okay. Well, um, what else do you race? Just kind of trying to qualify him to see if like, you know, again, if he's, if he's BS me, he said, well, I have a vintage Formula One car that I keep in Europe and I've got another vintage Formula One car that I race here in the States. So immediately I know like, okay, this guy's a baller. He can do anything he wants. I, so I said, so how does this race compare? He said, you got to figure out how to do it sometime. You just have to figure out it's best week of my life. Whatever's happening in my life, you know, it just, it's all on hold for this, this 10 days that I'm down here. It's the greatest week long race in the world figure out how to do it. It's accessible. You can get in. So that just sort of ate at me and fast forward to turning 40. Uh, we were living on the East coast. My wife got a great job offer in Massachusetts and I'm just back there, like total fish out of water. And I just was like, I gotta, I have to do something for my manhood. I gotta do something here. I can't be baking cookies every day. (laughs) And so as I was closing in on my 40th birthday, I had a buddy who was dying of cancer college friend. And, uh, got together with my college buddies out in California and drank way too much way into the wee hours in the morning and got onto what's on our bucket list. And I said, you know, I want to do that car race down in Mexico. And a buddy of mine said, Hey, if you want to do it, I'll give you my old Datsun Roadster. And I'm like, Oh, I had a Datsun 510. That was a hell of a car when I was a teenager and college kid. Datsun Roadster it sounds great. It was a Datsun Fairlady. They had the 1600 and the 2000, which was the same car with a with a." higher performance engine. And due to the sort of the rules of the event, when I got in, you had to have a car that was 1965 or older or identical to a 65. So I ended up with a 67 1600 Roadster to meet the rules. Turns out it was kind of a race car with training wheels. It was a lot of fun, but it was just way too slow. We had to drive it literally flat out all day. So twisty, rainy mountain sections. We were right in the middle of the pack, big, wide open high speed sections. We were all the way at the end. But it was a hell of a good time. I had Fortaleza with us. We had 10 cases of tequila. So 60 bottles of tequila for seven days of racing. It was, um, it was something. So it just planted a seed. Like, you know what? Get in there with a hundred horsepower car. Don't die. Go slow. Finish. Don't die. I didn't know. I mean, you know, I'd taken three days of the Boneron school when I got out of high school, but that was a lot of years before. Autocrossed a couple times. Drove fast on some back roads, but I was certainly no racer. And so to take on a a race where you build a car, drag it down to the very bottom of Mexico to Chiapas, and then race it 2,000 miles back, I mean, it's a a little more complicated than a weekend at the track. What kind of support team did you have on that race? Uh, You know, that's probably the hardest aspect of that race. I had uh, originally was going to have the car builder, uh, my dad and my nephew. My nephew was a mechanic, and that just all fizzled out, you know, getting people to the very bottom of Mexico, right on the border with Central America, is a tall order. And then they have, I mean, they're running a race uh, amongst themselves. They have to leapfrog the event, get around, you know, figure out where to where to set up the midday service. And then if you break down, they have to backtrack and drive over, uh, you know, the race route to pick you up where you are. So it, it's a tall order. Um, I ended up after the failure of, of my initial team, reaching out to some guys that I had um, found on the internet down in Texas. I was researching a car there because my car build wasn't going very well. And I was going to buy a car that was a track Datsun, uh that was for sale down in Texas. And through some forum, I just reached out to a guy in Texas and said, what do you think of this car? And it looks to me like you've also run the La Carrera. What do you think of this car in the La Carrera? And he just set me on my, just set me straight. He said, dude, what are you thinking? You can't go to the La Carrera with people who don't know the La Carrera. I mean, it's just a recipe for disaster. You're going to be racing and worrying about your team that's going to be lost and crying someplace on the side of the road is not, even if you're experienced racers, just trying to figure out how to get from, you know, how to cover 2000 miles of back roads (laughs) in mainland Mexico is not for everyone. So he generously offered his support and the support of his car builder and racer when they had raced two guys from Texas for just expenses. So I covered their airfare and meals and hotels and all that. And and they came down to help me out. And it was just, it was it was magnificent. And so then the next time I did it, I was so addicted to this thing. I actually offered my own car as an arrive and drive because I didn't have the money to go do it again. And I just needed to do it. And so uh, I offered an arrive and drive. And the fellow who, who rented my car, uh, he had a next door neighbor who's retired and you know, doing well in life, fiddled with cars, and he he was going to come down to be the crew chief. And they had another his nephew who was going to you know assist him. Great guys, but I had all the experience, so I was the one-eyed man leading the blind at this stage. So I had all the experience of having done this once, and uh, said, you know, we need to. We need to have somebody who's willing to work all night in a mud puddle, you know, on a back road to get our car back on the road. And that's not your, your next door neighbor who fiddles with his car collection, you know, for a couple hours then watches the news and has a, you know, a tall one uh, and, you know, is on his yacht on the weekend. That's that most people are just not cut out for that. So I had friends, I was friends with a Datsun racer from Monterey, Mexico, and he secured a guy who'd come and help us, you know, if we needed, but he could live with his crew. And, you know, the car was so well put together that we actually didn't need any service at all. So it was terrific to have all this tequila and not need to fix the car and be able to run flat out every day, uh, made for a hell of a good time. So it was a it was a hell of an adventure. Um, I finished, uh, I did it twice in the dots and finished both times. And then I I became a, um, a navigator for a fellow in a 53 Lincoln and would just, he had raced it a few times, had not finished. And my goal was just to get him across the finish line. We did have, uh, you know, somewhat of an off, no damage to the car. Uh, it was enough of an off that I figured out we were going to roll. And, you know, I was going to be a f- hundred feet down a ravine in a Creek, but we got hung up on a rock that didn't occur. But it was, an, it was enough that my wife said, Enough is enough. Right. <laughs> Managed to get back one more year as a photographer and then decided I better sell a race car so I don't have that allure trying to trying to call me back to Mexico every October.
1: How did you hook up with Fortaleza, by the way? Uh, that's a secret,
0: trade secrets. <laughs> okay, okay. No, they were a super small brand way, way back in 2008. And through a friend of a friend, I mean, they were literally, they were so small, they were literally storing all the tequila. I think San Diego might've been their only market. They were storing all the tequila for the San Diego market in my Mexico adventure buddy's office. So it was just like, Oh yeah, I know the brand ambassador, you know, maybe we can get hooked up with some free tequila. And then because I was ambitious enough and realized the opportunity, I poured it for all these wealthy racers who love Mexico and got it out on the internet. And, you know, not because of me solely, but, you know, 13 years later, I'm still doing stuff with them. And they were the number one trending tequila brand this year. And it was interesting that, you know, people could have had this wonderful relationship with Mexico. They're spending a lot of money there. They're racing cars. They love Mexico. But yet, you know, most of the people that are doing that La Carrera event I'm I'm talking about they've achieved quite a bit in their lives. They're usually a little bit older. They've achieved quite a bit. And most of them have never had a fine tequila. I mean, if they have, they'd had a Patron or something. So to offer them a sip of tequila and have them say, oh, you know, no thanks. And then to say, well, you might want to try this. This Añejo in my local liquor store is about $95 a bottle. And then people say, oh, what? Oh, and so then you pour a little sip of that and it's like, oh, maybe I'll have a little more of that. And then it's, and it, it was just, it was probably the the best part of racing in Mexico. And certainly one of the, the most fun parts of adventuring in Baja is having this sponsor that I basically, they give me carte blanche to just pour and talk about the brand. I've been to the distillery. It is all handmade. There's no sleight of hand and no additives. It's, you know, it's basically tequila being made as it was, you know, made a hundred years ago. Um, the only addition is a little tractor turns a stone now instead of a mule, but it's, it's a beautiful product. And most people, are pretty ignorant about that. And then when you taste it, if you like scotch, I have a son who's who's um, going to school in Scotland, you know, people live, breathe whiskeys in Scotland or wine, you know, where you're tasting the soil from all over the the world in the different wine regions. Well, tequila is very much the same way. You're going to taste the soil. You're going to taste as lowland or highland or whatever. And I'm very, very lucky that, you know, Fortaleza is a fabulous tequila and one one sip of it, people, it, it changes people's opinions rapidly. And then, you know, I'm their best friend, which is not so bad either.
1: Well, you're going to have to send me an airplane bottle of it.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'll stop by on my next trip to Southern California and pour you a little.
1: I would love it. By the way, we need to touch on the name Lucha Libre Racing, because I thought that was the greatest name. Where'd you come up with that and t- tell people what it means?
0: Yeah. So, you know, again, going to Mexico and being a phony racer you know i hate to say it that way but that that was probably underlying one of my underlying concerns like you know not not taking myself very seriously my mexico adventure buddy ted donovan you know i sent him an email and said hey i need three weeks of your life and he sent an email back immediately yeah he's freshly married you know whatever baby on the way yeah i'll give you three weeks of my life no problem he never looked at another email and so when i told him like what's your blood t-? when i asked him i needed your blood type because i was having his his uh, driver's suit embroidered, and I was having his helmet painted with his blood, name and blood type. He's like, Oh, what? Blood type? And so, you know, I thinking way, having way too much time to think about like, wh- what are we doing here? Who are we? What's Mexico all about? I'd obviously, I'd lived down there, and I just kind of was poking fun at ourselves one day and i just said you know like anything goes it's like lucha libre means you know free fight but what it it translates to is anything goes and you know that was our spirit in that event and you know spent a little bit of money that we didn't have and had great stickers made and you know hats and whatnot and it just really kind of took off and it was a lot of fun to you know again like i got a t-shirt order out of the blue once You know, guy ordered a dozen T-shirts and that just doesn't happen. dozen T-shirts and dozen hats. I'm like, how did you hear about me? Oh, I bought a vintage Allard that had raced in the La Carrera and it had one of your stickers on the car. So I looked you up. You guys look like you're a lot of fun. Like, all right, dude. So it's just, you know, it was a a lot of fun poking fun at myself. And that sort of, you know, that morphed my first um, Baja trip in the Land Cruiser. Uh, You know, we were still handing out. Uh, lucha libre racing stickers but it really didn't feel like we were racing anymore and i needed to come up with something that kind of fit what we were doing and and the idea of not being experienced off-roaders and driving this rather stock vintage land cruiser i mean it just hit me one day it's like dude you are slow baja and so once you get it painted on the side of your car you are that whether you want to be or not but it does set the expectations and it is it is a reminder for me and now slow bajas you know with good good stickers and t-shirts and hats. It's kind of taken off on its own.
1: Yeah. And I like the fact that that name just says, you just don't take yourself too seriously. You know, that's a recurring theme in my life, not taking myself too, (laughs) too seriously. So that was your entree to racing in Mexico, but well, no, when
0: I uh, finally sold my Datsun race car, which I sold on bring a trailer when they were back in the classified days and you know, the I was texting back and forth with the founder, you know, 11 o'clock at night before the car went live and had it sold with cash in hand, you know, less than 12 hours later. It made me realize too bad they didn't have an auction site then, but sold the car and pretty quickly the cash was going to become a backyard remodel for our place here in San Francisco. And I thought I need to get onto Craigslist today and find something really cool to buy and found uh, the 71 FJ40. Uh, old guy owned it up in Napa. And you know that vehicle led to first off-road trip in Baja 2012, where we transversed the peninsula. Just looked at a map and went, hey, here's a squiggly line of dirt that runs all the way across the peninsula. And you think, is that, is that like six hours? Is that 11 hours? There's no gas stations out there. I get 10 miles to the gallon on the highway. How many miles to the gallon do I get in dirt? I've got a range of 150 miles. This is like Almost 200 miles. How are we going to do it? And it just struck me as to like it was a whole new set of problems and a lot of fun. Fast forward to 2019, I uh, had entered the Baja XL Rally, which is a 3,000 mile, mostly on dirt, Redondo Beach to Cabo to Redondo Beach in 10 days. Um, pretty adventurous group. The the guy who founded that rally puts on the Budapest to Bamako rally. So if you are intrepid enough to jump in a $1,500 banger car and drive it from Hungary to West Africa, that's the kind of life he leads. And he, you know, to do something fun and easy, put down, put together a little 3000 mile Baja off-road event. You know, it's a, it's an interesting event again because it's put on by a Hungarian so it brings in uh, a lot of Europeans and some Canadians and it's I think pretty squarely aimed at the rooftop tent crowd so it's a not a high-speed event like the um, like the Baja races that you you have in your mind with trucks going airborne over the whoops there are puzzles to figure out clues to solve uh, waypoints to check in sort of geocaching. You know, our old-fashioned rallying where you can't go over this speed, you can't do this. So there's a lot of technical stuff to figure out. I, I don't do any of that. I, it's just not It's not for me. I don't need any extra challenges when I'm in Baja. So I'm in the touring category, which you get a starting point and an end point, and you figure out how you want to get there. I do that on a um, vintage paper map, and we open it up, and we look for sort of the most scenic squiggly lines you know, it's really a very good time with very interesting people. The first time I did in 2019, 140 cars from around the world. Um, I think there are 25 different countries represented, about 300 people. This year is smaller again because of COVID and, you know, travel concerns and all that. It was about 80 cars, probably 175 people. People, you know, they get stuck in the mud. They, you know, like we we look at the route and say, well, it's raining. The dry lake isn't going to be the dry lake. So we're not going to go anywhere near it. We're going to, you know, drive this dirt road to this paved road to get around it, to live to fight another day, the sort of rope-a-dope mentality of off-roading. But people go in there and they tear their stuff up and, you know, get stuck up to the axles and they they have a lot of fun with it and they camp in the rain and they do all that stuff. And my hat's off to them. You know, I have tequila at the ready for when I see them broken down on the side of the road or when we get into camp at night, there's a camp, official campground every night. Most nights, there's probably some town within, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 miles. You know, we tend to lean towards getting a room and getting a bed if we can. But oftentimes, you know, that's not really convenient. So we've got the camp gear with us and we're not opposed to throwing up a tent and blowing up the air mattresses and rolling out the sleeping bags. Although uh, Ted really does snore. So if we keep on doing these sort of things, I think I might have to get a cot so I can get, you know. 50 yards away and sleep out under the stars with my earplugs in. After I did that, you know, I don't think I have the skills immediately to become an off-road racer, but I certainly want to off-road a lot more. And so again, getting back to sort of setting the bar for some serious, interacting with some serious off-roaders in that 2019 event, that's when I painted slow Baja on the side of the car to sort of just set the bar and and remind me, you know, one of the things that we painted on the the glove box of the old Datsun was the Muhammad Ali strategy, rope-a-dope. So anytime I was too hot, you know, just, you know, sliding it into the turns and using up the entire road and trying to go 10 tents, Ted Donovan would tap that glove box and remind me to rope a dope, you know, that we just needed to cover up for 15 or 16 rounds and then come out swinging at the end. So I just needed that slow Baja to remind me of like, what we're doing here is not off road racing. You know, we've got a stock 50 year old vehicle on 30 inch tires that are 10 years old. At least I've owned them for (laughs) 10 years. (laughs) I don't know how old they were when I got them, but you know, it's it, we're just doing stuff a little bit differently, and that's the point.
1: And the FJ40 has been kind of your go to vehicle since that time in Baja, right? Yeah,
0: since I sold the Datsun, you know, I've had some other fun cars an E28, a Datsun Roadster, some other daily driver classics. But I live in San Francisco, I've got three kids, you know, in college, what have you. I have a two car parking garage, so it's just. It's just difficult having another classic. So classics have come and gone. The Land Cruiser has stayed, takes up half my garage, and it's a long first day to drive it from here down to San Diego. Usually I go down 101 and it's, you know, 10 or 11 hours, gets 10 miles to the gallon. So you're stopping a lot, Um, but it's, it's my machine. So I get up, you know, once or twice a year into the Sierras and go off-roading with some friends who have old four by fours. That's a lot of fun, flat fendered Jeeps and, and Mercedes-Benz Unimogs and, um, you know, just a bunch of old stuff, Land Rovers and whatnot, but old fun carbureted stuff and that's a hoot in the mud but baja is where i really love and so 2021 january end of january 2021 did the uh, the baja xl again that's every other year so we did the 2019 and then came back and did the 2021 this year with COVID, it was a little crazier the police got involved and we got shaken down i was a couple hours in a police station in santa rosalia and you know it just it's part of the adventure you know you're a podcaster one of the One of my great moments of podcasting, if I've had them my short career, was being in a tiny little restaurant in Bahia de Los Angeles and having a policeman walk in and walk right to our table and basically ask us if we're the the organizers of the event and then go on a tirade about the event, didn't have permits and this and that and all this stuff. So, you know, we feigned ignorance, would not go outside with him. 10, probably 10 minutes of interrogation standing at our table in this tiny little restaurant. Uh, He finally is satisfied that we're not involved and leaves. And as I'm looking around the restaurant, there are probably six tables with people sitting there. My podcast guest for the next morning is sitting, sitting next to us. Roger Mears is having dinner with his wife and a guy who was turning 92 that, that day. So, you know, that evening. So it was just kind of funny to like have to introduce myself to him afterwards. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm the guy, Michael Emery. I'm coming over to your house tomorrow to interview you.
1: Yeah. And Roger Mears is a veteran Baja racer.
0: Yeah, veteran Baja racer. He has a well-known younger brother, Rick Mears, who has won the Indy 500 a few times and a bunch of other stuff. Of course. Uh, Roger is an off-road motorsports hall of famer, raced a bunch of stuff, um, and just a damn fine human being, really quiet, humble, wonderful, kind of people that you find living quietly in Baja who open their home to you and say, "Yep, yeah, you can come talk to me about my life." And then it's like, "Why are you leaving so soon? We, you, you want to go fishing, you want to hang around." And it's like, "Nope, got to go." So that unfortunately that day we weren't so slow Baja. We had we had miles to make.
1: For someone who's maybe a first-time Baja traveler and wants to do some off-roading, what kind of advice would you offer?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. You know, first-time Baja traveler who's staying on the paved roads, you know, you should have a little bit of water in your car and, you know, a, a blanket or whatever emergency supplies. But, you know, it's a pretty easy place. It's a lot more adventurous than Southern California in that the roads are narrower and, you know, you can have, you can more easily have a traffic accident or something like that. But f- taking in the off-roading component. And again, while I've driven, I don't know, six, eight, 10,000 miles of dirt in Baja, I don't, I'm no Walker Evans. I don't consider myself an off-roader or an off-road racer, but most of the dirt, if you go slow, 25, 30 miles to the miles an hour, are fastest. You'll get through it easily. When I first started uh, heading down there with the Land Cruiser, the fellow whose who's shop I used to use to, uh, to service it said, well, you know, he's ready to build the thing to, to tackle the Rubicon. And I said, you know, wherever I'm going off road, a local guy is going to come by in a Datsun B210 down on one cylinder on three bald tires with, you know, six people in the car and the rear hatch off using it as a truck. That's not so true anymore. They're, the Baja is a lot wealthier. The cars are a lot nicer. Most people have their windows up. I seem to be the only guy driving around down there, you know, with no windows and eating dust now. But if you're going to go off road, get a good map. You know, you can download everything. I don't particularly use screens in the car when I'm driving around down there, but Google Maps or Benchmark Maps or any w- number of the iOverlander Overlander or whatever is going to be able to give you a squiggly line to follow wherever you want to go. I love the Benchmark New Roden Recreation Atlas. Before people used to spend a lot of money hunting down old Baja almanacs. That's a wonderful thing. Another indispensable item. I love uh, having one with me. You can get them at AAA or on eBay now, the, the vintage AAA fold-out paper map. They're not very expensive. They're great to have. Bring some water with you. Um, have a car that's in good good service. Get off the road and drive slowly, and um, you should be all right.
1: No, that's good practical advice because, you know, well, there's this urge when you have a 4x4 that you need to put lockers in it. You need to lift it. You need to have all of this underside protection and put in roll bars and stuff. And largely, I think that's just driven by marketing different companies telling us we need these things.
0: Well, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. And that is an awful lot of what I did uh, with the La Carrera. I mean, just jumping in a 100 horsepower Datsun and driving flat out at the back, mid-pack on rainy, twisty mountain stages. But the way we approach the off-roading, my vehicle was the perfect vehicle for what I'm doing 50 years ago. It was the finest vehicle you could get for that job. Baja has not really changed at all. What has changed is, you know, technology, Instagram. You know, I've always kind of joked those government warning stickers. I'd like to get a little sticker that replicates that. It says, warning for Instagram use only for all those off-road vehicles that you see, you know, especially in Southern California. You can't go anywhere without seeing vehicle on 37-inch tires, rooftop you know, tent, they've got the pickaxe, they've got all the, the gas and everything. And it's like, dude, you're just, you're just at the mall. Uh, And so, you know, if I can do it, if I can get my no suspension, 30 inch tires, air down, get onto some dirt with a paper map and a, you know, an old Coleman cooler with some water in it, some beer. I mean, we usually have something to eat. We don't particularly take the extra gear to like cook and do all the campsite stuff. Uh, I really love finding the little roadside stand. And so we're usually eating on the side of the road, buying tacos or what have you. But oftentimes, long day on the Baja XL, that means you're going into some little dusty grocery store in some little town and buying two packs of chips and a, you know, whatever the local equivalent of a Slim Jim and a six pack of beer. And that's dinner. And that's okay with me. But yeah, again, if I can do it, anybody can do it.
1: You know, the other propensity people have, in addition to putting a bunch of kit on their vehicles, is to carry every conceivable spare part and tool. And there was a time when I was new to off-roading that I kind of got into that habit. And after thousands of miles of trips, having not used 99% of that stuff, I just quit carrying it. Yeah, you're
0: really touching on the less is more. When you're taking on a 3,000-mile off-road trip in 10 days, you kind of think, oh, well, I need this and I need that. And and you're among people who have a contingency plan for anything that may go wrong out in the middle of nowhere. Well, since 2012, again, I'm maybe conservatively eight or 10,000 off-road miles on my old Land Cruiser, still driving around on the same tires, <laughs> you know, it's still, it's never broken down. It's never left me stranded. You know, it stalled once and I figured out it had crank. It opened up the, the air cleaner. I had fuel, you could see that. And I looked at the air filter and it was just full of silt. And I took it out and banged it against the back bumper and all the silt dropped out of it, put it back in, put the lid back on it, fired right up. And so that's that vehicle is what my skills uh, allow. And it's a great vehicle that can be fixed anywhere. I have some parts with me. I have some belts and a couple of hoses. And a couple of years ago, I had a strange failure that made me think I should bring a water pump with me. I did have a water pump fail when I was in the Datsun on the first day of La Carrera in 2006. That was a car that was never imported into Mexico. There wasn't going to be a water pump there. You know, It was a problem to sort that out. We did sort it. And I have a water pump. That seems like a huge indulgence driving around. You know, I have an old wooden box that came with the, with the truck that is strapped into the back and all that stuff goes into the box and I lock it up. And there's a, you know, there's a shovel and a folding shovel and a machete and a couple other things. I usually don't open that box the entire trip. A couple of Lucha Libre masks are in there, you know, all those sort of things. Some, some spare shot glasses. I keep those, that stuff in there, but I don't usually end up ever opening the box. And I hate, I don't want this to sound like it's bragging or any of that. I do keep the truck very well tuned. I do know my limitations mechanically. It's a vehicle that anybody can fix, but you got to get it to the guy who can fix it. So I do like to keep it in great shape, but I'm with you and I really feel less is more in so many ways. And I would like to re- to reduce my kit by 50%. And that's, that's the challenge going forward to like, look at each piece of stuff. Hold in your hand Marie Kondo style and say, does this warm my heart? Do I need this? Nope. Okay. Out it goes.
1: One of the other things I've been doing is taking a lesson from the uh, backpacking world because it's all been lightened as much as possible.
0: Yeah, I think that's wise. My my take on that is um, I'm really enamored by Surplus, and Surplus is so easy to find now. There are a couple of great sites. SwissLink has just great curation of stuff, and I just love that you're basically reduce, reuse, recycle, that you're finding some stuff that's been sort of, I hate to say battle tested, but I just love the whole aesthetic of like thinking about 1971, a guy who, or maybe 1975, the second owner of my Land Cruiser, where was he going to go find his kit? When he was going to go to Baja, he was going to go down to the army Navy store and buy some junk, right? Some secondhand stuff on the cheap. And so I just kind of come up with that as a, an approach to what I'm doing. So I, I love to find vintage surplus, what have you.
1: Funny that you say military surplus, because I remember buying a five gallon jerry can at the supply sergeant on Hollywood Boulevard 25 years ago. And it's a an original German jerry can. It's post-war. So it's probably 1954 or so. I think it's stamped. Five dollars. Yeah. I think okay. it was marked ten bucks. I asked if he'd give me a deal and it had probably been sitting there for years. So he gave it to me for five bucks. And meanwhile, on the internet, if if you want to buy them, they're fifty, sixty dollars. So if you've got a uh, if you've got a rally style three fifty six and that's the one you need to
0: have on there for Instagram use only. That's awesome. right. The only thing about buying surplus online, something to be aware of as opposed to being in the shop poking it around and you never get to smell the stuff. And if you're buying surplus, <laughs> I'm not a freak, but I like to smell the stuff because you know, you get that you get They'll that do. Hungarian get that Hungarian duffel bag and you just can't get that musty smell out of it. And then you say, geez, I paid ten bucks for this. I should use it. And uh It's just anytime you're around your truck, it's like, oh, what's that smell? Oh, it's my Hungarian duffel bag.
1: It's the same smell you get when you stick your head in the window of a 54 Packard or something, you know? Exactly. Yes. I love it. There's two ways you can go in off-roading, which is the solitary experience or in a group and discretion tells you go in a group, right? But do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, off-roading to me used to just be what we called car camping when we were
0: kids, (laughs) Right. So when I first started doing it, if we could convince somebody else to go with us, we did. And that was fun, you know, because you had somebody else to pull you out if you got stuck. And again, we're talking about Baja, but we're also talking about being college kids, not being particularly well-equipped. So I've driven all sorts of things to Baja, Toyota Corona, Volkswagen, uh, Westphalia, Datsun 510, lowered, not good off-road, a BMW Perry Dakar motorcycle. You would think it'd be great off road, but then you put two up on all your camp gear and it's horrible off road, way too big and heavy. So I've gone in a few different things, Forerunners, Land Cruiser, what have you. The interesting thing getting involved with the Baja XL rally, having a bunch of people from around the world that you don't know, but now you have something in common with them. And, you know, there might be a bunch of guys in Raptors or, you know, totally built Tacomas and all that stuff, Unimogs, what have you. And the ice may not be broken immediately, but hey, pull out a bottle of Fortaleza and, and start talking. And usually that, that melts people's facades pretty quickly. And so I've really gotten to enjoy the doing these off-road events where you're going with some people. And at the pace that we're going, we are often virtually the entire time we are by ourselves. So the last event uh the the January February 2021 Baja XL I think I was by myself every day. We had a goal of recording one podcast a day. I don't know if we nailed that, but if you can imagine driving 2 to 300 miles a day on dirt and trying to work in a podcast somewhere on something, it was daunting and we were out there by ourselves all the time. And so that's wonderful and awful, but when you start to see some of the other people from your event as you're getting closer to the destination, it just warms your heart. You know, you say, "Hey, wave," you know, you, you don't even know what that person's name is. You I mean, we we made up nicknames for everybody uh, on the event, but it really does warm your heart to get onto a trail and then it's like, "Hey, there's these guys that we've been calling the Almond Brothers." And then you get to the camp and, you know, you pour out, pull out the tequila and you start talking to them and, you know, you think they're scruffy hipsters and they turn out to be four of the most interesting people you've met. And here we are a couple of years later, I'm still in touch with, you know, all of them. And that's, I think, one of the unexpected takeaways from doing a group event rather than a solo trip. You know, one guy is the finest restorer of 80s Mercedes. Mercedes-Benz's, diesels. Uh, One guy is a very hip fashion designer for an entertainer in Los Angeles. One guy does astonishing upholstery work for vintage cars and works with wood when he's not doing Jaguar interiors. And another guy is an exceptionally talented photographer. You know, just again, four guys traveling together in in an 80s blazer, and so we ended up kind of there, their four wheel drive went out. So they were slower pace and being very careful about getting stuck and whatnot. So our paths started crossing regularly. And once we got that bottle of tequila on the table and had some tacos for lunch one day, I think we solved all the world's problems between the six of us and one, one bottle of tequila and, you know, probably 24 tacos.
1: How, how do you divide your time between San Francisco and Baja?
0: Um, not very well. I'm in San Francisco way too often and need to get to um, Baja much more often. Life and work and other things get in the way, you know. And so previously, my wife uh, worked in Los Angeles and she was flying down Monday morning and flying back uh, Fridays. And and so I had a pad in downtown Los Angeles, which was kind of cool to have a loft down there and run into uh, Magnus, used to walk right in the alley behind and it's kind of hip to just be around and and learning some other stuff and seeing some other cool kids. Uh, and so that was a great diving off place when you're driving a 50 year old land cruiser to drive six or eight hours down to downtown LA, get to see my wife, which is good. And then, you know, uh, be a few hours from the border right now. It's, it's been a, Probably three months that I've been home and I'm, I'm like Martin Sheen in Apocalypse Now every day I spend in this hotel room, I'm getting weaker.
1: <laughs> in a flop sweat.
0: <laughs> Don't get me started on Apocalypse Now quotes because I'll go all day.
1: I'll be right back with more Horsepower Heritage. Don't go away. Today's episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. And if you like scale model cars, they've got a special deal for my listeners. Whether you're looking for race cars or street cars, they've got something you'll like in itty-bitty 164th scale all the way up to the ginormous one scale masterpieces from the Amalgam Collection. You can see it all at modelcitizendiecast.com, and when you use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout, you'll get 10% off your order. Limitations apply. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now back to my interview with Michael Emery, right here on Horsepower Heritage. In the 1930s, the WPA sent folks out into the hinterlands to capture America as it was. And they did a lot of audio recordings. And I, you must be familiar with this.
0: Yeah, uh, Alan Lomax, and of course, the FSA photographers, Walker Evans, Dorothea Lange. Yeah, I'm pretty well versed with that era. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I figured you would be. I thought of that when I first started listening to your show because you're documenting Baja in a similar fashion. You're talking to locals. You're capturing moments and slices of life. And I really like that about the show. How do you make your editorial decisions? How do you figure out what your next episode is going to be about or with whom? You know, that's a, that's a great question. Uh,
0: anxiety drives a lot of that, trying to like, you know, I'm a one-man band. And so getting back to my roots... So we had the 77th anniversary of D-Day this past week. I was on the 50th anniversary of D-Day, sailed on an old World War II ship out of San Francisco as a photographer, you know, spent months and months and months of my life photographing this project, photographing the restoration of the ship, photographing the voyage, two months at sea excuse me, a month at sea, then two months bouncing back and forth between England and France for the 50th anniversary of D-Day. And after that, did a book and an exhibition that traveled for a few years. And the project that I didn't do that still bothers me is I came in contact with all these Merchant Marine veterans who had not talked a lot about their war experience. They were somewhat kind of misfits. And Tom Brokaw did his book, The Greatest Generation. And, you know, Saving Private Ryan had its moment. And all of a sudden, guys were talking. And for me, marriage, mortgage, and minivan came on rather rapidly. And it, it just, I wasn't able to sit around with people to record their stories. And I think that's still a valuable service. And in getting on to doing this Baja project, editorially, I want to talk to people who have done interesting things, who have lived interesting lives, who are known or unknown, and get their stories while they can still tell them. Firsthand, if possible. There are a couple of people on my list that have passed, and a couple of people who sadly have uh, some memory issues that. I haven't really been able to get a good interview with them so I think I'll have to talk to people, have people talking about them. But I think there's stories that that should be told. The the whole world of off-road auto racing is, you know, stems from 1967. And so, you know, that's 50 plus years ago. There're still people around who did it as young people who just figured it out on a cocktail napkin, went out to the shed and built it and then went down to Baja and tried it and broke or didn't break or, you know, figured out what to do next. And that is so intriguing to me. I could have an entire channel on just history of off-road racing. I mean, those people are nuts and they're bold and they're getting old and somebody ought to be pulling those stories out of them. So that could be me, but you know, I don't want to overload slow Baja with off-road racing, off-road racing, off-road racing.
1: They just sold
0: big Oli they did it went on uh, meekum it went for 1.7 million dollars uh, so i think with fees it's like one, eight and change pretty amazing result pretty amazing vehicle and i think that's one of the one of the amazing stories and i i reach uh, i'm i'm not going to go too much into i'm going to get that story <laughs> i'm going uh, if parnelli can't tell me pj's going to tell me the story so that again you know growing up reading my dad's old road and tracks knowing about Parnelli Jones through ABC Wide World of Sports with his buzz cut and, you know, just looking macho, that he could drive at Indy and then jump into a Bronco and go airborne and win the Baja. I mean, are you kidding me? What cojones? I mean, what that dude looked the part, was the part. Bill Strop building stuff. I mean, Bill Strop, the lineage from the La Carrera Panamericana that he built those Lincolns, and then he was end up, you know, building Broncos for Ford and Baja. I mean, just the, the engineering value in that. I mean, just it's a very cool story, and it will be a future episode of of Slow Baja, I'm sure, talking about Big Ole and and racing Broncos back in the day. But I want to talk to people who are, you know, somebody's doing mule trips and fishing and all the reasons that people go to Baja, walking the El Camino Real and, you know, are pioneers in flora and fauna and mapping DNA of the vaquero families and all that. So I've got a lot of uh, a wide, diverse interest in the place and. If there's an editorial process, it's just me figuring it out, trying to think of who should I talk to next. And every once in a while, thank God, a reader or a listener sends me a message and says, you should talk to this person, which somebody did with Christian Beamish. And I said, well, who's that? And then quickly looked him up, got his book. And this is a guy who's just a surfer, built an 18-foot boat and taught himself to sail it and then sailed it down the Baja Peninsula and luckily lived because he should have died and wrote a, a beautiful book about it that Patagonia published. And it was just in the most amazing process of not knowing a thing about something, getting completely obsessed by it, reading a book cover to cover in a couple of days, and then finding the guy and, you know, getting to him and getting him to agree to, to do the show. And then finding myself in his garage during COVID wearing masks, you know, however many feet apart from us talking about his life. That. That is totally, you know, what motivates me.
1: Well, I'm going to continue to listen and I uh, can't wait to see what you've got in store for me and the rest of your fans. And uh, it's just a terrific show, Michael. I Thank you very much for, uh, for hanging out with me today and uh, telling us some Baja tales. Well, Maurice, I'm going to
0: give you some big secrets behind the scenes. It's all to tequila and dust.
1: That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. If you like what you've heard, follow the podcast, leave me a five-star review, and if you want to get in touch, drop me a line at horsepowerheritage.com. Just click the contact button there, and that'll get you where you need to go. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merritt. Thanks for listening.